0: So my life right now is crazy. It, uh, we have a for sale sign in front of our house as of Friday, which which is really weird. Um, m- most of you have been in our house. Uh, I think outside of this space on Sunday mornings, our house has been the next kind of most trafficked, maybe other than the offices, the next most trafficked space in, in Antioch for the last 12 years. And so... We've loved that house and that, that place and dreamed of growing old there. Uh, Sarah has, has always, our daughter Sarah, number three, has always said, Mom and Dad, when you die, can I have this house? Um, and we thought that was sweet, even though it was a bit morbid. Um, uh, there are boxes everywhere we had to clean out stuff so that people could take pictures of the house to try and make it look like a magazine. Um, I now know that any house you look at online, it's a lie. It's all a lie. Um, It's camera angles and mirrors, and there's a bunch of people holding stuff that they kind of carried just outside of view of the camera, and then they put it back as soon as the pictures are taken. Uh, So we've kind of been in boxes. Uh, You should see the dogs. Uh, Poor Charity doesn't know what's going on, so she walks around sad all the time. Um, If you've ever heard me talk about peaches... Um, Peaches is surly and angry uh, and has made it her ambition in life to bark at everyone, everything, even the wind, Uh, and nothing has changed, so that's normal for us. Um, uh, Yeah, and then uh, this week was a lot of pressure, Um, last sermon, a bunch of people, uh, you're going to say all the things you could never say before, right Ken, and then that made me feel like I had to some. How come in with some big political stand. Uh, someone said to me, it's going to be this great history lesson, right? And that actually had me for a few days. I was like, that sounds really exciting. Um, uh, but I don't know that I had the time to really wrap my mind around that. Went out to dinner last night with Aaron and Emily Wells, and Aaron's idea uh, was uh, that I go verse by verse through Revelation. Um, Laughter And that I had all the time in the world to take because it was my last sermon. And then Emily elbowed him and said, we're in kids ministry tomorrow, Aaron. (laughs) Um, But I I landed on just, I don't know that this is as much of a uh, sermon as it'll just be sharing, but it's going to be really centered around grace. Um, It was interesting, a couple weeks ago was being asked questions in Beaverton at Village Church and it was kind of a Q&A time, and, and somebody said something like, um, What are you doing coming to Beaverton? Everyone in Beaverton's trying to get to Bend. What are you doing? And so I, I kind of got pulled into this discussion where it was listing all the accolades of Bend, and you've probably heard me saying before because at Kiln's College we, we kind of keep track of that, or when we're recruiting interns, we keep track of that, all the, the great things about Bend. Uh, about three weeks ago, we were named the number one place to live in America by a certain magazine. By the way, there's a lot of magazines, and they don't all agree uh, on this. Someone uh, sent me a, a different magazine that said Beaverton was the sixth best city in America to live. I felt like that was fake news. Um, <laughs> but uh, Bend was named a couple of years ago by Entrepreneur Magazine as the next big city in entrepreneurship. It's it's big that way. Um, It's booming. We were one of the fastest-growing cities in America for most of last year. Uh, You've you've just got this crazy thing going on, Uh, the most microbreweries per capita, uh, back and forth with Portland on that. Uh, You guys want to know why Oregon has the most microbreweries of anywhere in the country? The water is really good, which makes the beer good. And we were the first state, this is the only history you're going to get, we were the first state that changed the laws that you could sell on the same premises where you brew. Um, for a long time after Prohibition, you, you had to make the beer one place, but you, if you were gonna do food, that had to be somewhere else off-site. And so we combined that, and that's kind of what started the brew pub revolution, which now, anywhere you fly, they're bragging, Grand Rapids says it's Beer City, USA, and I was there, and I was just, I was combative <laughs> the whole time. I'm a wine guy, not a beer guy, but the whole time, every, every, every person I met that was trying to brag about Grand Rapids, I just felt like this need to tell them how wrong they were. Um, it's something about the unredeemed parts of me. Um, uh, where was I? Bend. Um, so Bend, I, I kind of got into this game of, of saying all the great things about Bend, and then later that night, Tam and I were talking, and uh, it was a really interesting conversation. It was... Um, that has nothing to do with it. Like that's not why we love Bend. Like the mountains are great; they're beautiful. Um, the aesthetics of Bend are beautiful. Everywhere you go, it's well kept. But it's the people that have made this home for us. It's the people in this church that are our community. And so that was really the part that we were kind of sitting into. Of um, it's not leaving this great place. I wouldn't want the mountains to be my idol, anyways. Um, but it's the people that are sad for us to move on from. So I want to take a little bit of time and just remind you, Antioch, of your story um, and then the theme that kind of pervades it, and that's a theme of grace. But if we go back to the beginning, um, the beginning of Antioch was uh, a desire to plant a church that was there before Tam and I even moved to Bend. It was why we moved to Bend, but we were at First Baptist Church, they hired us with the knowledge, Terry Randstad will remember this because he was in the room when I was being interviewed to take that job and it was them hiring us in as future church planters to be sent out and we threw ourselves at ministry and we were getting involved with kind of college kids and 20-somethings in this town and singles and had this really cool thing grow up and we gave it the name Antioch. And there were people that were getting saved. By the way, we don't talk about that enough anymore. Um, we're, we're supposed to be witnesses of Jesus Christ proclaiming his name, that, that somehow through us people would be afforded the opportunity to make a choice to follow Christ. And we need to do more of that. That's one of the problems I brought to this church, is I'm so anti-alter call that I took us to the opposite extreme where we actually don't give enough people the opportunity to really come forward and to say, this is a day that there's a change in my life. Um, but in this college group, there were people that were coming to the Lord and being baptized, and it was exciting. And, and as that kind of grew, um, I lost sight of this calling to plant a church. And a year went by until uh, we were having a conversation in the kitchen one night, and Tamara said to me, uh, as I was wrestling with some kind of headaches that I was dealing with at church, she, she just looked at me and said, you came here to plant a church. That's what God called you to do. And so it's about time that you do that. Um, and it was this kind of aha moment for me. Um, and so we called up Kip and Kristen. I'm sorry, Kip and Kim. Um, it used to be Kip and Kim, now it's Kip and Kristen. Kim is Kip's sister. But in terms of rolling off my tongue... Um, Uh, But Kip, uh, who was single at the time, and his sister Kim were our best friends uh, back then. And they were over three nights a week, and uh, we were watching all sorts of shows like 24 and Seinfeld, um, drawing out deep spiritual themes, writing curriculum and Bible study, fill-in-the-blank questions about it. Um, And uh, is this thing flickering for me? Are you sending me messages? Is Kip back there? This thing's blinking, and I'm wondering if Kip's typing me messages. <laughs> Say this about me, Ken. Remind them that the whole thing would fall apart if, if I didn't show up for work one day, um, which is true. Uh, so Kip and Kim came over, and they were in our kitchen, and Tam and I, this is the next day, uh, said, Listen, um, we think we're going to start a church And I was getting ready to try to explain why and what this was all about. And Kim says, yes. Now pour me another glass of wine. (laughs) And it was just this like, what do you mean, yes? She goes, we're in. Yes. You know, like, so um, talk to me. What's what's next? Where are we going? And it was this interesting thing of, of them buying into that. But it didn't immediately happen then. We felt like there was another couple that had to be a part of this if it was going to happen. And it was a a faith walk for me to put my future in somebody else's hands. It was kind of what I went through the last couple weeks, where technically I was unemployed for two weeks, which was really scary for me. Um, But with this church plant, we kind of said, if this other couple isn't willing to do it, then we're not going to go forward with it. We're really going to trust that God's going to move them. And, And so that was Fred and Melanie Kent. And we went to them and said, listen, we want you to be a part of this, but, but not because of our calling in your life. You have to hear it from God so that someday when it's really difficult, you'll know that the reason you are here is not because of us or because some, uh, of some big vision, but because God brought you here. Because there's too many people that are out of church for the wrong kinds of reasons, and then when something changes, you, you just continue on. You need to know why God has you somewhere so that you can be rooted, Right? Um, and so Fred and Melanie, I think secretly I was hoping they would take 24 hours and come back, and that would be that, and then we could be off to the races. I think they took a week. I don't even know if they're here. Maybe they could tell me, but they, they really made me sweat it out. And so I had these moments where I was like, God, should I have really trusted my future uh, into Fred's hands, Melanie's hands? Um, but they came back, and they were like, no, we've, we really feel like God has brought us to bend for this reason. And then a couple months later, um, with Sean and Cheryl, the same thing. We feel like God has moved us to Bend to be a part of this church plant. And more and more people started coming forward that had this unique calling that somehow this new thing in Bend is why God has been moving these puzzle pieces. Um, We can be abused by people telling us, God told me or God is leading me. And that abuse that can happen, that spiritual abuse can create a, a bad situation where we go to the opposite extreme and we say, I'm no longer going to allow that phrase or that concept into, into my mind or, or into my community. You can't use that with me because I've been hurt by that too many times. And if we do that, brothers and sisters, we're basically throwing out all of our faith, that said God is the God who's there, God is the God who talks, God is the God who leads, That, that God sent the Holy Spirit so that we could be in a dynamic relationship, so that we could have, as Paul says, fellowship with the Spirit, All of our being is trusting that somehow there was truth to what was said and told to us and that there's truth that we can bank on as we navigate forward. So we have to allow that God moves. We can still be against the the excess, if you will, but we have to at least remain open to the possibility in our lives and in the lives of others that there are moments when God really does move us around. Please, we have to hang on to that. And if we need to get more mature in how we listen for it or how we even speak about it or even more cautious in how we use it, that's fine. We can become more mature in that, but we just can't wipe that off the table and get rid of it. So it's amazing to see how all these pieces came together. And we tried to come up with another name for Antioch. um, But as we kept wrestling with this church, we really realized that it was being born out of this group that had already started And so we adopted the name Antioch and really kind of tried to drill down into what that name meant for us. And it meant four things at the beginning, that we were going to be Christ-centered. You know, the church at Antioch was all about Christ before there was even a New Testament that was written. It was the person of Jesus that everything anchored into, the work of Jesus on the cross and through the, the, the raising from the dead, this was the center of what brought those people together, so much so that the name Christian kind of first came out at the church at Antioch, that, that the followers of the way, which is what it was known before that, were first called Christians at Antioch. It's right in the book of Acts chapter 11 so we were Christ-centered. And then the second thing I'll, I'll get back to, the third thing was inclusive community, that we were going to take people from all places as best we could, all walks of life, all demographics, and through all ethnic or cultural backgrounds, which in Bend has often meant that we imported interns, speakers, guest musicians, but that we were going to expose ourselves to other people who were in the body of Christ as best we could because there's something we need to learn from them that we're going to be lacking if their voice isn't a part of the conversation. Because our collective experience, if we're all coming from the same backgrounds, is limited, right? Um, If we don't include other people. And so that was a value, inclusive community. The church at Antioch was the first time ever that, that people went and started sharing the gospel with non-Jews. It says it right there, Acts chapter 11. Intentionally bridging across ethnic divide and kind of bringing people together, so much so that you had this crazy situation erupt where um, they had to figure out how to do church because they had these traditions of not mixing those different ethnic groups. So you had meals that you weren't supposed to share with other people. You had times and places where you weren't supposed to be with those other people. And so somehow they had to create a revolution of faith that said, no, this is the way the body of Christ is going to look now. So we wanted to be inclusive that way. The last thing was missional, which was a big word back in the day. Now um, it kind of feels like a played out word if you're paying attention to Christian stuff. But that simply meant that we were going to live our lives as if we're on mission. That I am not the missionary here or the pastor. That we are the pastors We are the missionaries. Everyone should have a ministry in the church and a mission in the world. Whatever your job is, whatever you're doing, whoever the waiter or waitress is that you're talking to, the Uber driver, that you are a witness of Jesus Christ, that somehow the joy that you have in you should be a light that shines forward, that when there's hate that's being filled out or just kind of the political tensions of of, of today, that somehow your voice would be different that you'd be, as, like Brian Zahn says, a person from the future that is sent back into the present and, and lives a radically different kind of life. Let me explain that. We are citizens of the kingdom that is there and then into the future. And we know that that kingdom is a radically different place than the world in which we live today. And as citizens of that kingdom, we are planted back into this space, not as American citizens or whatever you might call it, but as citizens of the kingdom, as Christians, as strangers, as sojourners here, as pilgrims in this place from a different land, a different country. And as we're here, We look around us and go, the kind of language you guys are speaking is archaic. The kinds of battles you're fighting, the kinds of things you're getting bent around the axle on, the ways you're hating one another, the divides you're perpetuating, all of this kind of stuff is not really where we're headed. And so I've got a word from the future for you. Love your enemy. Love your neighbor. Turn the other cheek. Do good to to those who persecute you. Don't hurl back insults when people insult you. Don't get too caught up in the affairs of this community or culture that you miss the bigger picture that it's the people that really matter. So somehow we're coming into this, like as missionaries. We're telling people about a place that we've already been through our relationship with Christ, that we read about in the scriptures, that we've sensed and felt in our hearts, where we've been forgiven and redeemed, and we're coming as witnesses to that. And the joy that we have is a different clarion kind of a sound. So missional. But the one I want to talk about is the second one, and that was that our value as Antioch was going to be authentic spirituality. Authentic spirituality. Um, because religion can be a brutal, brutal, brutal thing. And religion can beat us up. And religion can injure us. Religion can abuse us. Religion can be incredibly difficult to navigate. But Jesus didn't come to found a religion in that sense of the word Jesus came to have a relationship with us and to forgive us through his grace to set us free. Because grace truly is amazing that way. And when we understand that, like the Jews and the Gentiles learning that relationship tr- uh, trumps religion. And that grace and relationship um, uh, kind of triumphs over the law even. So grace over law and relationship over religion that somehow coming together in this authentic space where it's welcoming and loving, that that somehow is the heart of what this whole thing is about. That this authentic spirituality would major on the majors and not get caught up in things that would distract us or that are actually human things that are globbing on to religion that have no business being there in the first place. And that we were going to be a church plant meeting in buildings that we set up and tear down. That we were going to put our money into people and programs and try and do ministry. That we were going to be Uh, not just concerned about what is going to serve our needs as families or parents or different demographics, but we were going to care about the world and the people in this world that are persecuted for their faith or the people in this world that are living with poverty that they can't navigate because they're in corrupt regimes in different countries with conflicts that sometimes were complicit in starting and that as they're navigating their way as refugees, by the way, it takes 20 years on average, for a refugee, someone fleeing conflict before they actually get rooted enough to have what you would call a stable life, 20 years in process. I'm living right now in uh, middle class, selling a house, buying a house, moving hell. And it's job transition and house transition. Someone said to me the other day, you've got two of the five biggest stressors going on in, in the world that you can have in your life. Like, no wonder you look like you do, you know? And, and no wonder it feels like it does. And I was like, oh, that's freeing. Like, there's nothing wrong with me. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm just stressed, right? Refugees, can we even imagine? Um, so we were gonna have authentic spirituality that was letting the grace kind of lead the way in this church. And I want to read three passages and talk about them that all kind of come at this from different angles. So three scriptures, I might throw in some other scripture, but three main ones that I want to bring us to that really speak to some of the ways I think this church has lived into, modeled, and experienced grace. The first one is in Hebrews. I don't have any of these on the screen. Please forgive me. Um, But in Hebrews chapter 10, we read this. Hebrews chapter 10. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. This is verse 23. Hebrews 10, verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, the hope that we have in Christ, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, there's a lot going on here. Um, and I want to try and move through it pretty quick. But we should be focused on how to, to spur one another on towards greater love and good deeds. It's easy today when, when we're kind of struggling to make it through the month and pay the bills, when we're worried about career or jobs, when we're running around like crazy, it's, it's easy to get so focused in on yourself um, that you miss all the good you can bring to other people. Here's the interesting thing. I've already done everything I can do to maximize my life, by and large, right? I work really hard at it every day, have been for years. Like, there's not a lot I can do to change my situation. Make sense? Um, but there's a lot I can do for you. There's a lot, I can't make anyone come and encourage me, but I can go and encourage you. I can't make anyone give me money, but you know that 200 bucks excess that I have to a single person in this church that's struggling, or someone that just needs that to show up to know that they haven't been forgotten, um, can make all the difference. I can't figure out how someone can network me into someone who's gonna get me into the right position or opportunity for me, my kids, my family, whatever, but I can look out there and I can see people that I know I can connect with other people and that when they get together, there's gonna to be something magical that can happen. There's so much more I can do for other people, potential that exists that, that I can just tap into through creativity and collaboration and just a desire to see goodness flourish, right? Um, and there's very little that I can do for myself. So the more I get focused on myself and just keep beating against that wall. You know what I'm talking about? Eventually, that goes to self-pity. How come I can't really move this marker? How come more people aren't helping me move my marker? How come I'm, I'm, I'm so stuck? I'm trying so hard, God. I'm trying so hard, but the marker won't move. Obviously, you're not working in my life the way you promised you would. Completely missing all the time the ways that God might be showing us how we could spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We're supposed to have a ministry in the church and a mission in the world. We can get so focused on ourselves that we miss this call, this opportunity that we have. And this is tied to, same sentence, our commitment to meeting together as a church, as the fellowship of believers. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Here's the thing if you don't go to church, it's a habit. It becomes a habit to not go to church. The breakfast places you go to, the time you set your alarm clock for, those things become habitual if you stop meeting together with the community of of believers. Isn't that fascinating? And that that begins to happen to people, that we get pulled into this, this space of habitualizing not going to church. Um, I'm going to say this really strongly because I don't have to get the emails tomorrow. Um, we know through kids' ministry that, that the average family at Antioch, so we can track it because of kids, I don't know how this reflects with other demographics at Antioch, but the average family at Antioch that has kids only shows up at most two Sundays out of the month, a vast majority one Sunday out of the month. But the the average is two or less Sundays per month. I'm speaking to the families now. When your kids are 30 years old, you are training them. They are being habitualized to never go to church more than two times out of the month the value you are creating and the routines that you are patterning into them will ensure that they never get involved in church more than 50% of the time. Probably because they're not in your family where you at least prioritize two times out of the month. It'll be, be less than that. And so the question I ask, what is so important that you're doing with your kids now that at age 30 you would say, that was worth it more than going to church and prioritizing that kind of habit pattern. Does that make sense? When my kids are age 30, there's a whole lot of things, a lot of their friends, a lot of their youth activities that will mean absolutely nothing to me as a parent. But I will care supremely that on Sunday mornings, they are in church, whatever struggles they're going through that those struggles wouldn't make them leave church to have brunch on Sunday mornings, but that those struggles, they would have learned to handle in church through worship and tears, around the community of believers, where they might be able to hear a word from God, where the Holy Spirit might be able to tug on their heart, where someone might be able to look at them and put a hand on their shoulder, where they might be able to go up for prayer, where they're going to somehow stay with it. Because through the difficult times, that's where we need God most, but where we're less apt to choose him. So the only thing that gets us there is the character or the habits that we have in us. Parents, the greatest thing, one of the greatest things you can do for your kids. I don't care if you travel for sports. Wherever you're at, find a church. The body of Christ is big. It exists in all the places you go. Go to a Saturday night service. Go to a Sunday service. But teach your kids, this is what we do. Whether you hate the kids program or not, it's not about... How it always serves you. Find another kid and and introduce yourself. You know, there was a two-year period, three-year period. uh, Tamara, tell me what the accurate number is. Where we didn't really tell anyone, but our kids hated going to Antioch. And we felt like that was like some big secret we had to keep. And we worked through it with our kids. And just this is what we do. Our kids love coming to church now. Um, Love it. And they go, run up on Sunday mornings, ask Linda, can I help in kids ministry? Do you need help with this? Kip, can I work for you this Sunday? And that came because we stuck with it and pushed through it and got to the other side where our kids were not trained that church is there always make you feel good, entertain you, and and kind of cater to your felt needs. Church is a community. It's a family, just like our, our family at home, where there's a give and a take, and you find opportunities to do your part, and in doing so, you build relationships that are long and deep and meaningful and really become the backbone of why we get together so that we can spur one another on toward loving good deeds. And then it says, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. um, Things are getting crazier and crazier in America. Things are getting crazier and crazier in the church. I'm not saying anything new to anyone right there, right? Yet church attendance is on the the decline in a massive way. Paul is is writing, the writer of the Hebrews isn't known for sure. Many think it's Paul. Whoever this is that's writing um, is basically saying the opposite, that the crazier the world gets, the more we need something that's so countercultural that reminds us of where our citizenship is, puts us around people that we can kind of lean on, so that it's not just us that's trying to stand against the wind, but it's us together. Most of the yous in Scripture, we don't have this in the, the English language. The closest we get is the, the, the southern phrase, y'all. But our you is always singular. Um, most of the you's in the New Testament are plural, where it's talking about you all, you all. And so we individualize faith oftentimes where it's meant to be a community thing, where together we're standing and understanding that this is the relationship that we have with God collectively, That that the collective is somehow a big part of my faith and my ability to stand firm in my faith. And so the crazier it gets, all the more as we see that day approaching We should be creating the habit of going to church, loving one another, encouraging one another, being loved by one another, and being encouraged by the fellow saints. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. By the way, um, we have learned as a church a language. Um, It's hard to have a deep conversation if you don't learn the language that people are talking in. Does that make sense? Um, I can have a, a simple hello, my name is conversation with a Spanish speaker. That's as far as I can get. If you become a little bit more fluent, you can talk about transactions. You can go buy bread. You can go order coffee in a different language. But to really talk about deep spiritual things, to wrestle with matters of the heart, you have to be fluent. Does that make sense? Collectively as a church, we've learned languages together. We've learned languages about race and privilege We've, we've learned to be able to sit in there with speakers that are coming from radically different places, and even if we don't agree with everything they say, we understand the language that they're speaking, and we've been able to wrestle with those kinds of things. Does that make sense? Um, Tamara and I are watching The, the Crown, just because Netflix is our drug of choice to numb the pain. Um, that's a joke. Um Tamara sometimes looks at me and says, is all this worth it? And so every once in a while, I lift a sermon illustration out of Netflix, and then I can, I can look at her and say, oh, ye woman of little faith. This is all spiritual. Um, but you guys know the story of the crown. It's basically doing the life of Queen Elizabeth, right? So before she even took the crown, back in the 40s from her father, King George, if you saw the king's speech, King George was the the king with the stutter. His daughter is Queen Elizabeth, who's still reigning, I think 97 years old or something like that. But it starts all the way back there and then traces her life forward. Uh, Winston Churchill, all these other kinds of things. It gets to the late 50s and early 60s. And then there's an episode that kind of traces this part of her life where an MP, so a member of parliament is, is what they would call in the commonwealth, uh, an MP comes forward and speaks to all these journalists about how out of touch the, the crown, the monarchy is with, with everyday people. Does that make sense? That this is kind of lost, it's become unhinged, and it's lost the connection with the people. And it creates such, such an uproar that Queen Elizabeth has a secret meeting with this guy and says, so what would you have me do? And he lists five things. Um, Highly offensive to her, but list these five things. And she ends up taking two of those things and acting on them. One of them was letting the cameras videotape her for her Christmas address. So bring us into your house. Let us see you, your family, that you're a real person, that we can touch you. And then the second thing was the debutante's ball. That you wouldn't just have daughters of aristocracy, the highborn, if you will, come to this debutante's ball at Buckingham Palace, but that you'd bring in common folk, normal people, blue-collar people, people with different kinds of jobs, different kinds of backgrounds. And so she takes that one, and she opens up this debutante ball. And, uh, and then it, it fast-forwards to the scene with her and the queen mum, which is her mother. I think her name was Mary. But older, the queen mum, and she's there. And they're both looking out the window as these cars are coming into Buckingham Palace, and people are getting out. And the queen mum is looking out there and going, that's the baker, you know, that's, that's the bricklayer. Uh, I, I hear he's the whatever. You know, and she's kind of saying these things. And then this dialogue happens that I found was really interesting. And, uh, and she's kind of lamenting to Elizabeth how things are changing, times are changing. And she says this, All to open things up, Queen Elizabeth answers, yes. To bring us more in line with the real world. Democratize us. And so it goes, the stings and the bites we suffer as it slips away, bit by bit, piece by piece, our authority, our absolutism, our divine rights. The history of the monarchy in this country is a one-way street of humiliation, sacrifices and concessions in order to survive. First the barons came for us, then the merchants, now the journalists small wonder that we make such a fuss about curtsies, protocol and precedent it's all we have left the last scraps of armor as we go from ruling to reigning to to what to being nothing at all marionettes and then she looks at queen elizabeth as the line of people are there and says right gloves on and they both put on these leather gloves because they're now going to go shake hands you know with the common people this whole conversation is one of privilege, that things change, and that when privilege or things that you're accustomed to begin to slip away, it can create bitterness in us, or we can look at it and say, you know what, that thing was given given to us in the first place to serve the people, to love others, to help others, to be stewarded. And so if the church and our role in society is going away, we can fuss about that, about how it slips and it changes and we have nothing left so we can fight about at least we have these rights. Or we can go, the church was never about us having certain entitlements to begin with. It was always about us being a beacon of hope. And by the way, we're not meeting in catacombs yet. Or if it's gender privilege, or if it's racial privilege, or if it's something else today, but never look at it from a self-protective lens, but look at it like Jesus did and say, he considered his rights or his powers or his entitlements as nothing at all, Philippians 2, and he laid those things down gratefully because he wanted to identify with others, that he considered those things nothing at all so that he could come down and serve and save the many. This is a language that's developed in this church There's something beautiful about that. That we can sit into the hard conversations. That we can listen and understand and wrestle. Not always agree, not always applaud, not always enjoy, but that we have been a community that values learning. The word disciple is a Greek word that simply means learner. Plato had disciples, Aristotle had disciples, Jesus had disciples. Disciples are learners. And we're learning about Jesus Christ, we're learning about what it means to live into this faith, we're learning about what God would have for us, we're growing in our maturity, and so we value the conversation. Because if we push away from that table, we're gonna stay right where we're at. I, I, I meet people all the time that are proud, they say to me, I believe the things about Christianity exactly the way I did when I first became a Christian. And they're incredibly proud and what they're saying to me is, I haven't been led astray by any kind of a liberal or progressive or anything else. I have stood fast. What I what I knew at the beginning till now never changed. And I look at that and go. That means when you knew nothing, what you believed when you knew nothing is what you believe now. After 20, 30 years of being a disciple, a learner, what that says is you just haven't learned anything. Nothing's been shaped. Nothing's been nuanced. Nothing's been nurtured. Nothing has grown. Nothing has taken on more complexity. Nothing has really... Um, changed in its flavor or priority in terms of which you put ahead of the other when you look at society or other people or your neighbor. That somehow, if you're not growing, you're still taking the milk that you began on and saying that's all you want now when you should be eating real food or real meals, as Paul would say in terms of his metaphor. We've learned how to have deep conversations. We've learned how to listen to hour-long sermons. Seriously. Seriously. Who can say that in America? (laughs) It says, Paul says that there's there's going to come a day when people want to hear what their itching ears want to hear. You have not been those people. You have not been those people. You have received and wanted to receive the difficult conversations. Bravo. Bravo. 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'll, I'll try and pick up the pace a bit here. 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul's writing to Timothy and he says this, verse 15, 1 Timothy verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. I've always known of this verse, but this is what I was really fixating on. We all know that Paul said he was the worst of all sinners. And we take it as kind of a nice little anecdotal thing. Paul didn't say he was the worst of all sinners. He said this. Here is a a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came to save sinners and I am the worst. Do you feel the weight of that? Antioch, um, I'm not perfect. In many ways I feel like all I live with is my imperfections. And you have allowed me to be in your midst and to be a teacher because we understand grace. That it's those of us that have been redeemed and are continuing to be redeemed that in some sense have something actually true to say or something of of our experience to give as this mercy thing plays itself out. But we don't have to pretend and we don't have to posture and we don't have to put a veneer on. We don't have to wear masks. There's a beauty in transparency. It's freeing when we have nothing to hide. It's, it's, It's a beautiful thing to go, I'm the worst of all sinners. By the way, know that. It's a trustworthy statement and it deserves your full acceptance. Uh, Don't just make it an anecdote. Like really take it deep. I, I think there's something that Paul teaches us here. Don't try and get ahead. Don't try and be someone you're not. Don't try and get it right. Revel in the grace. Revel in the mercy. Let it drive you back to Christ when you fail. Not try and wash it over or pretend, let that kind of be the motto that we live by, that it's Christ in us that is the hope of glory, not that I'm going to get it right next time because I keep getting it wrong in the past. It's, it's this weird game we get into every time when we come to the table, I've had a bad week, I still haven't fixed those parts of my personality Pete pointed it out in the Enneagram, but I still really haven't been able to sort it. And you know what, Jesus, I'll take that bread and dip it in that wine, but I'll be better next week. And Jesus, I think if he was here, would say, stop saying that. Stop saying that. Every time you say that, you push me away and you put your eyes down. Look up to the cross and see that I died for you, not just for one time, but for all times, that you can come back to me and revel in the mercy and in the grace, that you can take it afresh every time. Know that my love is for you. There's nowhere you can go where the love of God will not follow you and chase you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. It's grace that will transform you. The more you realize how beautiful this is, the greater your desire to just be with me during the week. And the more you're with me, you're going to be filled by those kinds of things, the less you're going to sin. It's not your willpower to do the law that's going to keep you from sinning. It's being caught up with and raptured by this mercy, this grace, this desire to walk with me and and to be my disciple, to follow me during the week where I would take you. That's, That's what's going to transform you. John 15, it's the branch being in the vine and what the vine actually does without the branch even being able to to, to kind of speak to it or, or figure it out, it's that life flowing into us that changes and transforms us, right? We just have to be drawn into this. And the more beautiful we see it um, as being, the more we're going to be drawn to it, uh, gravitationally pulled into it, want nothing more than it. And the more we begin to think that it's me doing it, we're going to stay on the edges. We're not going to get close enough to be pulled in. And we're going to be continually disappointed all the way up to the point where we go, you know what, it'd be easier if I just created more distance between me and God. More distance between me and God. Because the guilt lessens the further I move away. The reminder isn't there as much if I go and, and, and kind of just occupy myself with something else that will distract. Paul shows us the way. I'm the chief of all sinners. Um, Micah Bourne, you guys know, know Micah? Um, some of you don't, but he spent a couple years with us. He just launched an album this week. And I really want you to get it. Um, it's amazing. It's, it's a hip-hop album. It's a rap album. If you don't like rap, you might have trouble with it. If you, if you like rap at all, you'll love this. It's provocative. It's cutting. But some of the best albums carry theology better than, than any sermon um, written or otherwise. Some albums carry the best theology, which reminds me of a story. Um, there was a time when Creed's third album, Weathered, came out, (laughs) and that I thought it carried theology as beautiful as anything else. Um, this was 2001, because Mary Joy had been born, uh, and we had one car, Tamara and I, that we were sharing, and Mary Joy was still a baby, Tamara was tired, uh, it's a Jeep Grand Cherokee, we'd got it used, but it had these JBL speakers, Great sound system. We'd only had it like six months. Uh, and Tamara took the Jeep one afternoon, left me with Mary Joy, and she just needed some time away. So she drove down to the In N Out uh, Burger. Uh, we were in Whittier, California. So if you take um, Lambert down, if, if you kind of know the direction, um, it was Leffingwell and Lambert, I think, or the cross streets or something like that. But you can go find it. She went. To get in and out, and by the time she came back, she'd blown out the JBL speakers, listening to Creed. <laughs> and so the whole time we had that car, um, I had these, these speakers that didn't work, and it was always a reminder of my wife by herself in the car going in and out, jamming to Creed <laughs> so loud that it, it blew the speakers. Um, go get Micah's new album. Uh, It's entitled, A Time Like This. Um, But Micah, in one of his poems, says this. "Um, The prayers of the proud will never reach heaven, but God hears the slurred words of the stumbling prophets, and, and all will be cursed who mock them. It is not an easy task to plead with the world, to grieve for the world, especially since God often speaks through those most broken. The picture we paint in our minds is a far cry from the reality of heaven. When the saints go marching in, it will not be a parade of the almost perfect. God does not reserve grace for those who need only a little bit. The healthier and no need of a doctor, the healer is for the sick. Heaven will be a freak show. We think of heaven in the book of Revelation and we think of Jesus with all the saints around him. We forget that those saints are the sinners that were at the parties that Jesus went to when the Pharisees were saying He parties with sinners. It's the sinners. It's those that know they're the worst of all sinners. It's those that know they need the grace that will be the saints in heaven. Um, Matthew chapter 15. Some of the Pharisees and teachers, right at the beginning of Matthew chapter 15, and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands. Before they eat. This is in the Bible. Um, Jesus says, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might, uh, might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teaching are merely human rules. And Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. And his disciples go, do you know that you offended the Pharisees? You offended the religious leaders. You offended the good Christians. Like Those are the people that that are our people. You offended our people. You offended our tribe. And Jesus replies, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. Um, Legalism. has probably been for me the biggest thing I wanted to fight against as a pastor. When we started Antioch and as we went through legalism. That it was the external behaviors that somehow are how we evaluate other people. That when you walk into church, we look at what you're wearing and you're either getting it right or you're getting it wrong before we ever consider what's in your heart or what you might need from us or what Jesus might be saying to us for you. And we do it with lots of things. We do it with all the different kind of human ways, the way you talk about politics, the way you think about how society should be structured. Like, that's great, and I know you're passionate about that, and I know it has ramifications that really affect your life and the life of your kids, but I think Jesus somehow would care a little bit more about what's going on in your heart and in the heart of the other person with you, and how you can be a light to them of Jesus, not just an apologist for your view of political correctness. I don't care what you listen to on TV, know that those ideologies have enough truth to keep you addicted to that TV show. It addicts you. You can't get away from it. You keep watching it, even though uh, you know that with that little bit of truth, it's poisoning your soul because none of those TV shows or news channels have the love of Christ in them. None of them are really ultimately concerned with the grace that you're going to have in society for your fellow man. Be careful the diet that you have that way, that we get so caught up in what it means to be the right kind of person or to fit in the right kind of way or to be accepted by others that we don't realize it's the inside, our inside, the other inside, the grace that comes between us, that is what this whole thing is about. And when we promote as leaders the other kind of stuff, when that legalism comes in where we're evaluating and judging who's going to get it right, whether you parse scripture the right way, whether you know how to articulate the right kind of theological view for other people, that is not of God. Of God is that we would look past that and understand that no matter where you're at is where the love of God starts with you. You see, the people that had stones in their hands to stone that woman they threw in front of Jesus had stones in their hand before they picked up stones. They had judgment in their hearts, which meant they had stones in their hands before they ever picked up the stones. Do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus had grace in his heart and therefore could not, would not pick up a stone and looked at the other people and said, follow me. If I'm the only one that's getting it right, that's okay. I'm the leader to show you the way. I'm the true pastor that's gonna guide you forward. But if we don't understand that grace, you might not have a stone in your hand now, but you're just needing the right thing to hit the right button, and you will have, metaphorically speaking, a stone in your hand because judgment's already in your heart. Antioch, we've done good with this. I haven't seen any examples where I feel like we've been castigating people or making the behaviors or the externals or the getting it right, the thing that, that made community possible here, it's been grace that's made that possible. I was with Jay, um, my, my friend Jerry Root, and he's spoken here a number of times, the C.S. Lewis scholar, who looks like a professor. Maybe you remember him, the beard, the vest, the tweed jacket. He is the professor. Um, if he was on Gilligan's Island, he would be the professor. Um, Jerry Root has always said something, and it really stuck with me and and was reminded of it this week, that, that there are two kinds of people in this world. This is his language. There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who are goofy and know it, and those who are goofy and don't know it. And they're dangerous. And the sinners and Jesus, what Jesus kind of asked us to be and what Paul kind of modeled for us, they're saying there's goofiness in the world and that's okay. The understanding of our own goofiness means that we need grace and it means we have humility. But when we don't know that we're goofy and we delude ourselves into thinking that we've got some kind of merit, some kind of goodness, something to be excited about, that we're somebody, that's dangerous because we're going to begin to abuse the vulnerable people around us. We're going to become the goats that mistreat the sheep. There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who are goofy and know it, and those who are goofy and don't know it. So my last words to you, Antioch. Take the rock out of our hearts. Know that this is supposed to be a movement, not an institution. That it's the groundswell, the power, the momentum, the grace that's supposed to fuel the church of Christ, not the institutional rigors, not the human kind of traditions that we put around it in terms of structures. Culture is a rigid construct. And when our culture, American culture, maps onto Christianity, it's the cultural parts that usually wound or damage people. Grace changes that. It's a movement. It's wild. It's contagious. It's beautiful. People will want to follow you. People will want to follow Jesus because of it. Um, we had a bachelor savior that changed the life of a bachelor apostle. And 80% of our New Testament is about that bachelor savior written by that bachelor apostle. And so there is not a normative in the church that you should be striving to. If you are single, you revel in that singleness. You are closer to Jesus in some ways than I'm going to be. And Paul understands you more than, than, than I would be understood by him, Right? That there's something that we've created, a cultural construct, that there's this pyramid, and at the top of the pyramid, there's this perfect little picture that everyone should strive for, and it's surrounded by a white picket fence. And that is not the gospel. That is the American dream. It is an idol, and it tyrannizes people. It doesn't belong in our New Testament understanding. Jesus came for people like you that feel like you're on the edges or on the margins, that you're brokenhearted in despair. Isaiah 61, when Jesus opened the scroll for the first time and said, I am the one that came to fulfill this, it was about the brokenhearted. Can you connect with that? It's not just apologetics that says Jesus is the Messiah and we somehow intellectualize it. His words were about tending to the broken hearted, those in despair. I have parts of me that need this. You have parts of you that need this. That somehow the gospel, the good news, it radiates most at the edges. That it's the people in the middle that somehow can sometimes confuse it. Because we think we've arrived, we don't think we need. and so. We have to devolve and kind of break that thing apart and understand that we're the community of Christ and that we need all the different parts to be whole. And so I would just simply say the church, like Peter, walking on water and the waves and the wind scaring him distracts him from Jesus so that it begins to sink, so that that Peter begins to sink. That that's kind of the world in which we live, that either individually or collectively, we're out on the water trying to live by faith, trying to keep our eyes on Jesus, but the waves and the wind are distracting us and they're scaring us. And as we take our eyes off Jesus, we begin to sink And the church needs people to step up and to speak to it, to call it forward, to be prophets and prophetesses, to help redeem it in some kind of a way. When a leader leaves, the beautiful thing is it creates so many opportunities for other people to go, you know what, it's my time. Now it's for me. And please, please, ladies, it's time for you to lead. The church always leans on women the most when the men are the most scared. When the men were scared about being crucified or Jesus dying, it was the woman, it was Mary that came and took a year's worth of money and said, I understand in this moment what's really going on and breaks perfume over Jesus. She understands that it's not the fear out there that's the biggest thing. It's that Jesus is the biggest thing, the only thing. This is our anchor. This is what we need to be connected to. As Paul went into foreign cities and was talking to people and men realized the heresy he was preaching and worried about what that would mean in their communities, it was the women, it was Lydia, it was others that came forward and stood with Paul and got fledgling little Antioch's off the ground. It's this kind of a time where we need to realize that somehow we all have a voice to bring and she leading Is a beautiful part of that, that we have to find new ways for those voices to come to the front and for men like me to follow in that because I don't have all the answers. Pete says it all the time. It's not spiritual community until there's someone in the midst that we wish wasn't there. It's not spiritual community until there's someone in the room that we wish wasn't there. I love communities that I get to create and craft because I go in and I see a reflection of all that's good in me. I go home. I go. I go to bed with a full heart, thinking about all the wonderful parts in which I'm. A, I'm in that conversation, being humorous, being liked, trading jokes. It's when there's someone in the room that brings out the worst in me that I go to bed and go, "I'm the worst of all sinners." Jesus, I thought I'd fix that part of me. Jesus, I need grace. Jesus, even though I lead in some areas, I need to follow in others. I need Tamara, I need others to show me what it really looks like to love people in this situation, what it really looks like to be patient with this person, what it really looks like to speak a word of encouragement, what it really looks like to have my values in order and prioritized correctly, that we need that voice and we need it now. So I'm gonna close um, by bringing Tamara up and she's gonna give us the benediction And she's going to pray for us as we head into communion. And this is this beautiful time where we get to remember that it's about Christ. Jesus is our life. He is the only place that we're going to find life. Jesus is our life. He's the only place we're going to find life. And this table reminds us of that.
1: Hi church, hi friends and family, my friends who are my family. Um, Just know that you are loved. And today and each week when you gather here, look to your left and look to your right and and know that these are the people that God has placed here for you to love and to pour into. Um, Today I just wanna give you a benediction. This is from Romans. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we're going to come to the table of grace. So would you all just stand with me? Let's, let's just uh, pray. I, I wrote this prayer for you today. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, great in kindness and love, you have given us forgiveness through the blood of your Son and united us through the power of your Spirit. We are your people, your church, we are the bride of Christ. May our love for one another be unending, as is your love. May our grace for others flow like rivers of life, as your grace has brought us life. May we serve with humility and kindness. May our face and our words radiate the joy of our salvation. May we stand united in love. May our love be evidence of the reconciliation that you have brought through your son, Jesus Christ, and through his victory over sin and over death. To you be all glory and all praise.